So in Luke's gospel, chapter 13, I want to read to you guys uh, the portion of scripture that we're going to go over right here, beginning with verse 10. We read, it says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. This is such a cool account that we see in the life of Jesus. And perhaps you've heard me say before, I like to use the word account when I talk about the Bible because so many times people think of it as folklore or story, but this isn't just stories. These are literal accounts, that historical accounts that took place. And what, what I have in our, our study this morning as a title is the gift of healing. And, and in, there is a spiritual gift of healing, and that's something that we see Jesus having that power to do so, to heal people. I'm reminded on, on this topic that I once met a woman who had been crippled at a young age. She had been burned in, in a fire that was taking place in her house, the water heater and, and gas, they, it exploded and the house began to ca- catch on fire. And she was just a little toddler at the time. And the, the fire began to consume her. And her mom w- was terrified and screaming to try to get to her daughter. And, and there was this miraculous event even in, in grabbing her daughter out of the fire where suddenly the, the, the gas that was burning stopped for a moment and she said she felt the voice of the Lord tell her, go in there, get your daughter. And she ran in the room, grabbed her daughter and ran out. But her daughter was burned from head to toe, so much so that it it scarred her face. And if that wasn't tragic enough, uh, when the little girl began to heal and recover, but when she was eight years old, a drunk driver was going down her street and hit her and drug her body down the street so that she lost her ability to walk. And and because of the amount of trauma that was taking place in this girl's physical body, as she was trying to recover, the the trauma caused her to lose her eyesight, where she she could barely see figures. And 
she then become, became distant to God because as she was growing up, she, she had this, you know, the confusion and, and the anxiety and the anger that comes from dealing with a life like that of like, there's no God maybe. And it was at her lowest point of depression when she just wanted to die that she just began to ask Jesus to come into her heart, that Jesus began to speak to her and minister to her. And as she began to become what a believer is, what a true believer is, suddenly the, the, the suffering of the mental emotions of wanting to die began to go away. And, and this young woman began to grow in the Lord, even though she couldn't walk, even though she couldn't see. She began to have this joy that was put there. And, and when I met her, she was being wheeled around in, in the country of Israel. We, we had gone on a, on a, on a trip to Israel uh, with, a, with a church group, and her cousin was taking her from site to site in a wheelchair. And when there was places that the wheelchair couldn't get up to, he would either pick her up or the whole, her in the whole wheelchair. He was a big guy. <laughs> her in the whole wheelchair and take her so that she can go experience that place. And what was even amazing to me is that she could barely see the place. She would just be in the presence and hear the stories that were told of, of there, being there in Israel. And she was just so joyful. And so I, I asked for her story once I found out a little bit of her background. And that's, that's how I know these things about her. I, I, wanted, I said, can I sit with you and can I hear your story? Because she just had this joy about her. Her, her name was Connie. And, and, and I'll tell you a little bit more about her later in this study. But that's the joy that, that God can heal us not only physically, he can also heal us emotionally. Let's look at verse 10 as we begin our study this morning. It says, Now he was teaching in, the syn- in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So right off the bat, something I want, I want to express as, as Bible students, Jesus' ministry of teaching, preaching, and healing. That was his threefold ministry. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching for those who already knew God, preaching for the lost, and healing for the sick. And Jesus, what I recognize in this first verse on 10, he wasn't so opposed to organized religion. Because where is he? He's teaching in the synagogue. That was the Jewish church. He's there. He's he's doing what he's called to do. Because sometimes we get this idea of Jesus was completely opposed against, against religion. Now, I noticed too that he's doing this on the Sabbath, which was the Jewish, it's their day of rest, and they still practice that to this day. What's really interesting is how hard they practice this Sabbath day of rest. Because if you go to Israel today, one of the saddest things, well, I think it's sad, is that if you're there on a Friday evening and you're hungry, or maybe you want coffee, and you try to go get some food or some coffee, you're like, oh yeah, let's go to the Starbucks or whatever it is. And you try to go get that, it's all closed. Everything's closed down because that's their, they don't do work on that day. And you're like, oh. And you're like, man. Like, and then you have to find maybe perhaps the, there'll be a, a Palestinian shop that's open that might be selling it. And they have all the, the, these rules on Fridays. If you go to one of their elevators on, on the Sabbath day, there's a long line for it. And you're like, what's going on? Why is there such a long line? It's because... On the Sabbath day, they turn their elevators on this setting where it stops at each floor, and so nobody could push the button. 
Nobody is allowed to push the button because that's considered work to push the button. So you have to wait for the long line or it's like, I'm taking the stairs. <laughs> and they still follow all, all these interesting rules on the Sabbath day. And what they had did is they had taken the Ten Commandments and some of the ceremonial laws and they've even started to include laws that were kind of ridiculous, even laws against making medicine and things like that. So that they, in their mind, healing was work. In verse 11, it says, And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of... Sorry about that. A spirit of infirmity, 18 years, and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. Now this spirit of infirmity, what we recognize in this verse is that a demon had caused this. This is something that's happening from a spiritual origin. Now that's not to say that all sickness comes from demons, but this one in particular shows me, look, there's spiritual warfare that can literally attack our body. I remember one of my uh, the, the college pastor at Calvary Chapel, he, one he would have these migraines at times that, that would come and, and, and go. And, and there were severe migraines where he would have to stop what he was doing, lay down, and, and take whatever medicine he needed to take or, or just try to relax because it, it would literally at times cause him maybe perhaps to call for another pastor to say, hey, can you teach for me? Because it was so strong. And one time he was laying there with his wife and, and the, the migraine was so strong and he said just the Holy Spirit just told him like a small voice in his heart was saying, this is spiritual, call the pastors to come lay hands on you. And he was just like, he told his wife, go call Pastor Jesse. And she was like, okay. So they, they called the pastor, they prayed over him and, and the migraine went away. So sometimes there are, there are times when Illnesses can be from a spiritual warfare, from a demonic origin. But I don't want to go and say like, okay, if you have, you've got a cold now, there's a demon behind everything. So we don't want to get too carried away, but be discerning. This sickness had lasted with her for a long time. 18 years, that's a long time. And all the, the turmoil that would come with being bent over like that. You know, maybe in, in foreign countries or, or on videos, you've seen when, when people have some sort of contortion in their body where it, it, it looks, sadly to say, but it does at times look grotesque or, or weird. And there's something going on physically that I don't understand. But Jesus knew exactly what was going on in this woman's life. And he knew even that this was a spiritual thing taking place. This crippling type of sickness, what I recognize is, look, our bodies are God's temple. We are his instruments. And Satan wants to destroy God's instruments. He wants to destroy your bodies so that you guys can't be used by him. He wants us to suffer, and then he wants us to blame God. He wants us to break fellowship with God and to even be impatient with the Lord. He doesn't want us to be in the will of God. He wants to get us off of that will. And with all of that that's going on in this woman's life for 18 years, look at this. Where was she in this 
portion of scripture. Where do, you, where do we see her? She's at the synagogue. She still made it to go worship her Lord. And I'm like, wow. Maybe that, that's convicting when I, when I feel like, oh, I'm, I'm too tired. Or, you know, I don't want, I don't, you know, look at this woman. Broke, her body is broken. She's still going to go worship her Lord. And something that I see happening in the church today is there is, because of COVID, people got used to the internet. People got used to being at home. But our Bible teaches us not to forsake the gathering. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So there it is. We, we should not be forsaking the assembling together of ourselves. Well, people say, oh, but, you know, I could have church at home. It's about the heart. Yes, it is about the heart. And if the Lord is in your heart, if the Spirit is leading you and guiding you, even from this verse, he's going to remind us that we shouldn't forsake the gathering of the brethren. It's so important. Look at verse 12. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Wow, this leads me to my, to my first point of our study this morning. Point one, healing belongs to the Lord. Healing belongs to the Lord. When we see this, Jesus calls out to this woman. He, he calls her. Man, to, to hear Jesus call your name. That's so awesome. He spoke healing into her life then. And it's only by his power that this woman was healed. And we recognize Jesus then even, he laid hands on the woman. And oftentimes when, when Jesus heals, there's not one way that he did it. He did it in so many different ways. There'd be times when he would spit into mud or into dirt and cause, make mud and put it in a guy's eyes so that the man could see he was blind and then he was able to see after that. And another time, he, he simply just spoke when the guy who was sick wasn't even there. Remember the centurion's servant? He said, your servant is healed. And, and then the, the centurion went home, and they said, hey, your servant, he, he's healed. And he said, well, at what time? And they're like, oh, at, at such and such hour. And he was like, dude, that was the same hour that Jesus was speaking to me. So there's not, what I love about God, he doesn't work in cookie cutter methods. He doesn't, it's not always the same. So if I'm praying for healing over someone, I'm not like, okay, what were those magic words that I said? And what was the, 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 the type of oil that I got? Where did I buy it from? Let me go buy it, make sure I get it only from there. No, no, it's not superstition. The Dodgers won the other day and because I tossed the keys to Lisette, I said, if you catch the keys, the Dodgers are gonna win. And then they won. And since then, the other night, we didn't do it, and they lost. And then we did it again the other night, and they won. Now, that's silly superstition, isn't it? 
but we're going to pray for them. <laughs> when we look at the way that at times God uses healing in our life, one, one of the, the memories that I have of, of seeing healing take place in a person's life, because it, it, we don't see it often where someone physically literally gets healed, but I have seen it before. Uh, there was once one of my friends, his niece, uh, she developed kidney stones uh, that needed to be removed. And they saw it, and they were getting ready to take those steps to do a procedure to get these removed from her. And, and before that all happened, we, we, a group of us met together in a Bible study. We laid hands over her, prayed over her. And I even think we anointed her with oil that, in that particular time. And then a few days later, on the next week when we saw her, she was like, hey, uh, like they're gone. And we're like, they're gone? She's like, they looked and they're gone. Like they're, they're not there. I don't have to do surgery or anything. And then she, we were like, oh my gosh. And she was like, dude, like God. And it was so cool to see that, to experience that. Um, so what do we do when we are experiencing suffering, especially physical suffering? What is our defense for this? Our defense when we're suffering is the imparted grace of God. The imparted grace of God. That's grace that God gives you and you don't deserve it. You don't have to work for it. He imparts it to you and it's given to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, remember Paul, when he had the thorn in his flesh, he was suffering with this. He began to pray that the Lord would take away the thorn that was in his flesh. And what that was was some sort of illness that he was suffering with. Mm. And in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 and 9, Paul wrote, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. <clears throat> Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Wow, I had a little itch in my throat and I was like, Lord, this verse, I need you to make it true right now. <laughs> <laughs> but when we go through suffering, look at Paul's example here. He said, look, the Lord told him, look, I'm not going to take this pain away from you. My grace is sufficient for you. Man, so what do we do when we suffer? I have a few things that we can do while we suffer. Number one, immediately submit yourselves to God. Immediately, when you are in that place where you're physically hurting, Submit yourself to the Lord because know that God is in control. Because if you're fighting against him, then you're not in his will. And, and the suffering is, though it, it might not ever be taken away, the suffering is just going to bring turmoil, anxiety. Number two, thank and glorify God in trials. Praise the Lord for, for trials. Thank him for, you know, his love that never fails that he has a plan for your life. And when you start to look at all the other things that he's doing, keep your eyes on Jesus in that. And number three, lastly, 
Spend time in God's word. Because when we look at, at the truth, it's going to bring truth into our hearts, our minds of who God is, what he's doing in our life. And these are the things to do when we are in pain. And I, I look at the gifts of healing and I, I question sometimes, or I, perhaps I've heard people question, but are these spiritual gifts for today? You know, there's people who, who don't believe that certain gifts are supposed to be used today, like healing, tongues, prophecy. Even uh, one, of, one of my favorite pastors, or Bible teachers, I should say, he's a pastor too, but I, I like to listen to his sermons, is Pastor John MacArthur. Because the way that that guy teaches the Bible is he, he goes deep into doctrine. But he is what is known as a cessationalist which is someone who doesn't believe that those gifts are for today. Uh, I have to disagree with him on those points. I believe the Bible teaches that healing, tongues, and prophecy are for today, and I want to show you guys why I believe that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, this verse right here is what they will often say is the reason why they do not believe in these gifts, healing, tongues, and prophecy. So I'll read it in 1 Corinthians 13, with verse 8, it says, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So they're going to say, look, you see the gift of tongues, it, it's not for today. But as I read that whole verse, because we always have to look at things in context, 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 context. At the end of verse 10, it says, when that which is perfect has come. That which is perfect. Sometimes they, so they say, okay, it's talking about the Bible. Once the Bible is finished, then that's it. But I look at the Bible and I see the book of Revelation and I'm like, wait a second, is, is, is Revelation complete? Have we seen Jesus come back yet? No, we haven't seen Jesus come back yet. Prophecy is not sealed up. You remember even too in the book of Revelation, John would be writing his prophecy as he was seeing these certain visions and then God would tell him, hey, this particular vision, John, seal it up and don't write about it. Seal it up until the time. So wait a second, you're telling me that there's something prophetic that's going to come that we don't know about yet? That it's not done yet? It's not fulfilled yet? Oh yeah. Yeah, prophecy's not done. So therefore, if you look at this verse, tongues, whether they cease, and prophecies, whether they fail, if it's all tied together, because it, it, it is all tied together, we realize these prophecies haven't failed yet. And they're going to continue until the day of the tribulation period. So the gifts are for today. Healing, prophecy, tongues. So this leads me to my second point this morning. Is legalism begins in the heart. Let's look at verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days 
on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. First of all, to see this scene take place, I, I probably would have been so angry for this woman. And if, if I would have been there with Jesus, I would be like, dude, strike him. Strike him down. Like, well, this woman got healed, and he, he's, he's telling you that you're wrong. I would have been mad. Because what, what I see play, in place here is legalism. And I have to wonder, how did this rabbi, this teacher of the word, get to this point in his life? And when I studied the Old Testament, I began to see clues of why perhaps the Pharisees became this way. When you go back and look at the Old Testament scriptures, you guys remember Moses and the Israelites. They were taken out of Egypt, out of the bondage of Pharaoh. And then God gave his covenant to them and he told the Israelites, keep the Sabbath day holy. And he took them eventually, after 40 years in the wilderness, took them to the promised land. And he said, look, every seven years, I want you guys to give the land rest. I don't want you to work in the land, but it's going to be a year of jubilee. The Shemitah is what it's called. And, and they, would, they weren't supposed to make fields or, or do all the corn and all the wheat. They weren't supposed to play with that anymore. Just let, let the land do its work. And they didn't do it for 490 years. They kept working. They said, no, we're going to keep working. Work's important. We need our food. We need our money. So the Lord, because not only because of that, but then they went into idolatry. So he allowed the Babylonians to come to take them captive and take them to a faraway land. And he said, because you didn't give my land rest for all those 490 years, I'm going to get every one of those seven years that you were supposed to do it back from you. So for 70 years, they remained in captivity. Is God just? Oh yeah, God has justice. God chastens his people. So then, after those 70 years took place, eventually the Jews came back into the land. And do you think they began to take the Sabbath seriously? Oh yeah, after that type of punishment, they were like, we need to make sure that that never happens again. So any Sabbath law, we're going to follow it to the T. And then they began to put all these extra rules then on the Sabbath day. But you see, the fallacy of what they were trying to do, they were like, okay, no more work on, on Sabbath days, no more work on that seventh year. They f didn't realize that the issue wasn't necessarily that they were working, or that's not where it started. The issue began in their heart. It was a heart issue because their hearts began to be far from God. They weren't honoring him, keeping him holy. When they began to think that it was a works issue. So then they began to relate to God on their works and started trying to please God on works. And we, you know, we do that today. We, we try to think that, okay, if I'm doing good, if I'm walking the walk, then God loves me more. And when I do bad, God loves me less. But that's not true. God always loves us. He is omnibenevolent. His love is always pouring out to us. And we just have, simply have to be open to receive it. But when we turn away, we say, no, I don't want your love. I don't want to receive it. We're rejecting that love. But God is trying to pour it out on us. In verse 15, 
It says, then the Lord, the Lord then answered him and said, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his donkey, his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? So Jesus is coming in with the truth now to give them truth about who they are. He's saying, look, you're a hypocrite. And that hypocrite, that word, it's an actor, someone who puts on a mask. That's what it means. Someone who talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk. Now, according to their Jewish law, a donkey could be untied to get water and food. It couldn't be untied to go do work, but they could untie it on the Sabbath day to go get water and food in order to prevent suffering on living things. And that was their tradition. So Jesus is going to give them, gives them the illustration here. He says, look, for 18 years, this woman was bound. If a donkey can be unbound to go out to get some water in order to prevent it from suffering, how much more so this woman? This woman had a physical need. And one thing we recognize as we study the Bible, that there is a higher law of God, which ministers to people's physical needs. If someone is starving, if someone is hurting, there are those higher laws that deal with the preservation of life. God, God doesn't care about, in the, that moment, the work that is being done to heal this woman. God wants her to be loosed. Remember even what Jesus told the Pharisees, and their self-righteousness and their legalism when they began to condemn him and his disciples for eating the grains that, that they were plucking on the Sabbath day. They were out there walking. Jesus is talking with them. They're like, ooh, some grain. And they start chewing on it. And they started to, to say, hey, why are your, your disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath? That's not holy. And then in Matthew 12, verses 7 and 8, Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He said, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. You see, they were condemning the guiltless. He used the illustration of King David eating the bread from the temple that was supposed to be only for the temple. But King David went in there and his men were hungry and they fed them out of the temple bread. Because that need was there. And he recognizes, look, Jesus, who created the Sabbath, is Lord of it. But they were so caught up in trying to seem holy that they left behind the whole heart of worship. One of the stories I love about Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel is that as all the hippies began to come to his church services, the people who were perhaps more used to wearing the, uh, the suit and tie began to see the hippies come in with bare feet, dirty feet, shorts, long hair. Maybe they smelled. And they began to tell Chuck, hey, man, they're, they're dirtying the carpets, Chuck. Like, what, what, like, what are you going to do about it? They're, they're making our, our church dirty in, inside the, the floor. And Chuck Smith said, hey, rip out the carpet. 
You see, he recognized it was more important that these hippies got the word of God than it was for the floor to look nice. So we can't get caught up in that legalism. In verse 17, And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. I I love the wisdom of Jesus. I love his attribute of being a healer and his lovingness, his, his righteousness being performed on this woman. And now Jesus here is rightfully getting the praise. And the Pharisees, they're ashamed. They're put to shame. Which leads me to my third point. The world will be put to shame. You see, the Pharisees loved the praises of man and they wanted all the glory from men because they viewed themselves as basically the bridge between man and God. They said, okay, the people come to us, we give the people the word, and look at everyone's looking at me. And they're, they're giving us the money and, and they're giving us the praise and they're, they're saying, oh, teacher, teacher. And, and they loved that. And then Jesus came into the scene and just said, hey, nobody comes to the Father but through me. And the Pharisees were like, uh-uh, it's us. And Jesus said, no, it's not about that anymore. I'm the bridge. Jesus being God himself. So I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And they hated that. And I re- recognize in the Pharisees that one thing they needed to learn how to do is to how to be humble. I remember as a young Christian asking God to show me humility. When I first got saved, I was like, God, because I was a pretty prideful little kid running around in the streets. And when I got saved, I had to learn, okay, like I'm supposed to be humble now. So Jesus, teach me what it is to be humble. And I remember one time in particular, they had this thing at the church that I was going to where they had this bike run where you could go with, they have like a cyclist ministry. And you could go with the cyclist ministry. They was kind of like, they wanted to open up to everyone, like, hey, come check out our ministry. So I was like, I could go hang with the cyclists. And I took my mountain bike, which is like way different, I found out, from a street bike. Uh, And uh, we started to do a a 15-mile kind of just little run with with the bikes. And oh my gosh, man, these guys were like flying ahead. And I was like way at the back trying to go up the hill, like like pushing with all my strength to get up this hill. And there was these two bikers uh, who stay, had to stay back. Like the whole pack was gone. And it was just these two cyclists and me. And I was just struggling. And I was like, dude, like I cannot keep up. I think part of it was like I didn't have the strength. And the other part was my bike was like the wrong bike to do that with. <laughs> and at the end, as I was coming back, I just remember like the Lord, like the spirit telling me like, like you're asking me to humble you. Like I'm humbling you. Like you thought you're all big and bad, can hang with everyone. And look at like you can't even keep up with, with like all these little these other little dudes in their little tights. And I was like, dude. And I remember I went home and I, I told my dad, I, I said, Dad, I, I think I've been asked I was praying and I asked God to humble me and this happened. And he was like, That's cool, Sal. He's like, you know, that's gonna be an everyday thing though. It's like it's not it's not just a moment where you learn it. It's like you need to have that be taught to you every day. And I was like, oh, I can't do that every day. <laughs> but the Lord was, was growing and shaping me, and we do need to be 
and humble ourselves and approach the Lord in a humble manner. So because of this, it's like when, when we have that humility, when the Lord exalts us, we can rejoice in the things of the Lord. So we can follow after Jesus and his example of love, and it, it's going to take that death to self, acceptance for what Jesus did on the cross, and then walking after the new life of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to stop right here, and I want you guys to track with me, because uh, we actually covered some of these verses when Jesus began to talk about the parables uh, up until verse 30. And we're going to look at verse 31 of this chapter. It says in verse 31, On that very day, some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Now look, at some of these Pharisees, they're telling him, here, look, they're warning him, Herod wants to kill you, leave. So what I see here is some of the Pharisees actually did end up believing. We'll look at Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. These are men who, who turned to Jesus, even though they were Pharisees. And when I look at what Jesus is calling Herod, he called him a fox, like this sly, destructive, and little, like, weakling of a creature. Jesus is saying, look, I, I'm going to be leaving anyway, but there's going to come a day that I'm going to the cross, and I'm going to rise on the third day. And Jesus is saying, look, at the works that I'm doing, performing cures, casting out demons, these works are testifying that I am the Messiah. And I wonder, what do our, our works say of us? When people look at our life and the things that we're doing, the things that we're leaving behind, are we leaving behind that legacy that is someone who followed after Christ? Or are we like the Greeks and the Romans who just wanted to put their statue up there and have men just look at them forever as those statues are eventually all going to fall down? You see, those things are going to pass away, the monuments of men. But working for the kingdom is eternal. In verse 33, Nevertheless, I must journey tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. And he said, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as the hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. In verse 33, Jesus here is perhaps with some irony saying that the prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. It cannot be that way. But Jesus knew that prophets were going to perish outside of Jerusalem. And he also knew that most of the prophets were going to die there in Jerusalem. And the irony of that. That out of the place where these prophets were coming out of their own people, would kill them. The Jews, at many times, they killed their own prophets. And they killed Jesus. Which leads me to my fourth point. Jesus desires repentance. 
Again, in verse 34, we see even the passion of Jesus that he desired. He saw and he knew that the multitudes were going to turn against him. That one week they'd be saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then seven days later, they'd be shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. The same people, his people. And he knew this about them. So he said, look, I, I want to gather you together the way that a hen gathers her, her young ones and protect you but you guys aren't willing. And he still sought to do so. Even though they killed him, even though we ourselves are the reason why Jesus was put on that cross, we still see his love for his people. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we look at people today. We see people are living on grace right now. When the world deserves judgment, they're living on grace. And I thank God if Jesus came back sooner, before 2010, 2011, I would have been lost. I would have been left behind. So I thank God for his patience and long-suffering. And, and I realize that other people in my life need to get saved. Look at verse 35. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, Jerusalem would end up desolate from Rome. Rome in A.D. 70, would, after Jesus came and resurrected after that, years later, Rome would come in and, and wipe out Jerusalem again. They would burn down the temple. And what's in, interesting is Jesus even told his disciples, he said, you see this great temple that you guys love so much? Not a stone is going to be standing upon another. And then literally that prophecy was fulfilled when the Romans, they, they began to melt the temple and the gold that had the temple together began to melt. And they used to take off, they wanted to take all the stones out so that they could get the gold. And so no stone was left upon another in the temple. I've actually seen these stones. I put my hands on them. It's real. And God's not done with his Israel. And God's not done with us. All right, we're going for the long haul. I got, I got a couple more verses for you guys this morning, and I, we, I want to finish this point. <laughs> Luke chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisee to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Now, dropsy, if you don't know, it's when your body begins to, to build up with fluid. So, so your, your arms or your legs, maybe they begin to, to, to fill up with that, that fluid, that pus, the swelling of the body. In verse 3, And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. He took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. 
Now I wonder how Jesus felt that they were criticizing him again, literally for like the same scenario that just happened recently. Which leads me to my last point this morning. Point five, endure criticism. Endure criticism. Look, Jesus here, he's waiting patiently with his critics, still teaching them in love. And I realize that we're going to have people in our life who are critical about us, even when we're doing good. When dealing with critics, there's going to be times that for their sakes, we need to humble ourselves so that we don't stumble them. And there's also going to be times when God calls us to keep moving forward and to endure the criticism, to do what is right, right before the Lord. We look at Timothy and Titus, Paul's disciples. Paul told Timothy, hey, um, both Timothy and Titus knew that God had given them salvation. They were both Gentiles. Timothy was part Gentile, and Titus was full Gentile. And they weren't circumcised. And then he was there with them, and he, and he taught them that God had brought salvation to the Gentiles. So he was like, now go forth as such, you know. And then as they were both going forward, he told Timothy, hold on, Timothy. It's something we've got to take care of. So Timothy had to humble himself, and as a grown man get circumcised, in order so that he could minister to the Jews and give them the gospel. Even though he had the freedom in Christ that he didn't have to do that, he did it so that he could better minister to the Jews. So there's times when we need to have discernment on whether our Christian liberty is, is being exercised correctly or not. And also, too, don't be overly critical of yourselves. I have this phrase, there's an analysis to the point of paralysis. Analysis to the point of paralysis where you're just analyzing every little thing that you or someone else is doing, so therefore you're saying, I'm not going to do anything because I don't want to move. I don't want to be wrong. Yet there was healing going on. There was healing that Jesus was doing to this man. He was going, forsaking all of the legalism that people were trying to bring in. He said, no, I'm going to heal this man. I'm reminded of, lastly, when I went to South America and there's uh, a group of us went into a prison. There was uh, young men and women with me. And they said, okay, all, all the men, you guys are going to go to the men's side of the prison. And then all the women, you're going to go to the women's side of the prison. And so I started going with the men and then they said, hold on, Sal. <laughs> and they said, y you do worship, right? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, can you go with the women because they're going to have worship over there. We want to have someone to do worship with the women also. So I said, okay. So I went in there with a group of all the Colombian women prisoners, and I was doing worship, worshiping the Lord. And at the end of that, I, I gave a little bit of my testimony. There was a translator there, because I need someone to speak Spanish for me. And at the end of that, the Lord put this thought in my head, because um, I asked if anyone wanted to receive the Lord, and a bunch of hands went up. And then I felt it in my heart that the Lord was telling me, tell them if there's anyone sick to bring them forward so that we could lay hands on them and pray for them. I had that thought in my, go in my head and I was like, like, Lord, is that from you? I don't know. Like, just, 
do you want me to do that? Because that's kind of weird. I've never done that before. Like, do you want me? I don't know. And I was like, Lord, okay, just give me a sign. Just give me a sign somehow, something. And I swear, like all, all the women there was all like this one, like um, ugly Colombian in the back was like, oh, looked at me and just went like that with a thumbs up. And I was like, I'll take it, Lord. <laughs> and, you know, I, I prayed and I said, hey, if, tell them if there's anyone sick, tell them to come forward. And we prayed and we laid hands on them. And I don't know if people were healed or not because I wasn't like I stuck around in the prison to find out. But I, I know that the Spirit was doing work. And I saw that. I saw there's faith when we have hope that God can heal. And I'm reminded of Connie. I told you guys her, about her at the beginning of the study. One of the, the craziest things about her was that she told me that she believed that because the Lord told her that her sight was going to come back. And she had this joy about her and, and, and this love for the Lord that I was like, man, like the love through that suffering, the joy, the hope. And sometimes we don't need those things when we're not in trial. The Lord allows suffering to make us realize how much we actually need those attributes, joy, peace, hope, love. So let's walk in that this week, knowing that, look, our God is a healer. And that's something that we can ask that the Lord would do in our hearts, our lives. Let's pray this morning.